he's nothing less than the greatest race driver of all time. And he might just have the greatest racing story as well. Born in the area that's now part of Croatia, he grew up mostly in a refugee camp in Italy. He didn't like for food or shelter, but he wasn't exactly living a life of luxury. Fortunately, his father had a brother living in Pennsylvania. So in 1952, his father applied for a visa. And in 1955, the family got on a boat and made the two-week journey to the United States. He and his twin brother were simply born to race and had already developed a passion for the sport when they came to the U.S. They quickly discovered a track near their uncle's home in Nazareth and borrowed money to begin their careers, racing jalopies. And they both won their first race too. Despite all the cliches about their bad luck within the racing world, he discovered what good luck is really all about. But in the end, theirs is a story for the ages, a tale of absolute triumph. I'm Mark Monteith, and in part one of a story that's going to take two episodes, I'm going one-on-one -on -one with Mario Andretti. This is One-on-One -on -one with Mark Monteith on 1070 The Fan. Brought to you by Georgetown Market, Indy's family-owned natural food store since 1973. Movie Time Video Productions, they make your memories last forever. And Robin Run Village, Central Indiana's finest continuing care retirement community. Well, today's one-on-one -on -one episode comes from the Chris Economaki Press Room at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and it's really an honor and a privilege to be here with a man who many say was the greatest race driver of all in the 20th century, Mario Andretti. We've been fortunate to speak with some previous winners, such as Rick Mears and Bobby Unser and Al Unser Jr., uh, Johnny Rutherford, and it's about time we got to Mario. And Mario, we need to jump right into your story because there's so much to talk about the way you grew up. Uh, you were born in an area of Italy, which became part of Yugoslavia later. Uh, read that your father was a farm administrator. Now, what is that exactly? Well, by the way, thanks for having me on the show. I uh, and um, uh, yes, the farm administrator means that uh, uh, the family had uh, several holdings. You know, seven different uh, parcels, different farms uh, with tenants. I mean, with, yes, with uh, managers. And she and he used to oversee all of that. That's what it really was. But uh, he, um, he, he owned uh, 800 hectares of, of land total, which is like 2,100 acres or something. You know, so uh, it was substantial. And, um, and again, the family, in many sense, uh, had arrived, if you will, or he had uh, in his life. But um, all of that uh, was interrupted uh, after the war because of uh, uh, what really happened later, uh, realigning of, uh, uh, of borders and all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. What are your earliest memories of living there? What memories do you have of being in that area? Well, as a child, it was just a normal life. As, you know, what else do you know? It's, uh, uh, you know, you went to school and you had friends and uh, you went to church and you did all the things, uh, close family uh, gatherings. Um, my uh, grandparents had a beautiful place uh, right uh, just to, at the base of uh, the little town. The little town is up on a hill, you know, it's, uh, and, and at the base of the town by the train station at a beautiful restaurant and hotel. So I remember many family gatherings there. But again, it was still during the war. I was born when the war broke out, basically. So uh, as kids, uh, you know, we knew nothing else. We knew that, uh, but almost because 
the fact that uh, you, you grasp what goes on with the adults around you. You know when it's happy time and you know when it's not. Mm-hmm. And it was a kind of a mixed bag of things. But um, again, as kids, however, we still played, we still all did all the things. But uh, there was certain un- there's some uncertainty in the air for whatever reason because uh, the political uh, discourse was uh, every day you know, among the adults and uh, agreements, disagreements and all of that. And it was very heated. You could you could feel that. And uh, so, uh, again, uh, then some tragedy struck the family uh, where the partisans, uh, you know, there were, you know, it was anarchy happening at the time, quite honestly, when the, our land became uh, occupied. And um, and so the even the town uh, thug, you know, would... Uh, with the with the gun would take charge and and uh, and instill authority on on himself, if you will, and go out there and uh, and sort of uh, you know uh, maybe vindicate certain uh, things and and so it was uh, like I said uh, um, it was just a time that even us as kids you know thought it was sort of uh, terrible to some degree. Yeah, have you ever had a chance to go back to the area where you first grew up? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I've uh, I've gone back. Actually, uh, I'm the honorary mayor of the town for life. Okay. Yes, and I've succeeded. Now, is it in Italy now, or where is it? No, now? it's still now. It's Croatia. Okay. It's Croatia, and um, and the, um, uh, the I like I said, uh, it was about six seven years ago that I succeeded um, a, a general, uh, five star general from uh, the. Uh, uh, Italian uh, aviation uh, in Italian in Italian uh, aviation and that uh, was uh, from Montona and he was um, uh, nominated the honorary uh, mayor of that town in 1962 and he passed away and now you know <laughs> and so they, they, they thought they'd pick on me <laughs> and it was quite an event because I took uh, the entire family there were 29 of us uh, to uh, to Italy and um, that was the last time I visited just a few years ago. But I'm uh-huh. I'm going back this year again. Uh, but uh, it was really quite a nice event. You know, yeah. you get all of the you know the authorities giving you that. You know, <laughs> we, we had um, uh, it was uh, it became formal, but it's an honorary thing. But it's yeah. you know it, it has some meaning. And but yeah, absolutely. The town uh, actually they um, they've had a marble plaque uh, at the house where I was born with, uh, you know, uh, the information as, okay, this is where Mario Andretti was born, you know, world mm-hmm. champion, stuff like that, mm-hmm. something that, you know, I guess they're proud of. But uh, uh, the town is hasn't changed very much. It's a medieval town that uh, was uh, actually founded in the fourth century. Oh, wow. And it's still a, the, uh, the most inhabitants that the, the town had was 640 people. So it's very small, up on a hill, mm-hmm. and it hasn't changed much. Sounds great. Now, I'm told that you seem to have just an innate interest in auto racing. Uh, I read somewhere where your mother claims that you and Aldo, your twin brother, were running around the house pretending to be race car drivers or something at a very, very young age. That's a that's true, and, and you know something. Uh, to this day, I don't know why, <laughs> but there's something that sort of I don't know captured my imagination, um, and Aldo, 
uh, you know, my mm -hmm. twin brother Aldo. Um, you know, as twins, obviously, you know, we share a lot of the same things, and and um, and you're you're right. Around the house, we we didn't have an automobile there, and around the house, we take a, a a lid from pot, you know, and and one guy would hold the handle and go, you know, and walk backwards, and the guy that was driving, you know, so you're walking blind, so you turn whenever. That's how we learn how to drive. <laughs> so you're playing, pretending to drive a car, you yeah. don't even have a car. No, right? No, exactly. most people didn't at that time. Yeah, so. exactly, and That's I mean, amazing. it's amazing that it started right there. Uh, we had a little buggy, you know, where uh, my house was, was in the middle of a very steep hill, and it was a steep hill, and then there was just a little bit of a level spot in front of the house, and then another steep hill down. And there was a little church right at the end. And uh, I remember that uh, we would be coming down with this little buggy, and there's a turn in front of a house, and just, you know, squeak around there, and there's some little old ladies coming up the street, you know, we're trying to dodge them. <clears throat> and they used to complain to my dad and, and my uh, uncle priest, you know, that they were trying to kill them. <laughs> I remember that. You know, so, and, and, you know, to this day, all those things are vivid in my mind for some yeah. reason, I don't know. And, um, but again, it just, uh, it started as long as I remember, actually, yeah. this idea of you know going fast or doing something somewhat daring it was meant to be i guess you wind up in a refugee camp at the age of eight years old now what was that experience like well here again you talk about uncertainty you know it's um uh when uh our region became formally occupied by yugoslavia which was under tito marshall tito uh, hardline communism there was a choice my dad had to make, and many, many others, thousands of others, uh, to remain and succumb to communism or uh, just move on. And they allowed you to leave uh, with just uh, what you could carry. You know, they actually, they provided a truck, and, um, and off you went to uh, across the border uh, into Udine, which is in the Trieste region. Udine is the next town and they had a uh, disbursement camp as they called it there where you arrived there and it was the most squalid conditions you could think of you know tents and whatever and um and there you waited to be moved somewhere in italy because poor italy was so upside down after the war uh like europe was in general and uh, and see which city could absorb you know uh five six thousand people and uh, we were, half of our family was moved to Lucca in Tuscany. And uh, we, uh, we were like in an old monastery, which was uh, vacant. And uh, the other half of the family, my grandparents, uh, my uncle, they were moved to Arezzo, which is just below Florence. So we were separated somewhat. But, um, uh, and that's, that's where it started, uh, our, our life in, uh, in Italy in a refugee camp. You know, it was just one of those things. But, you know, as kids, however, you know, we went to school, we did all the things. And, and I always say, uh, as kids, we never really suffered, per se. I, we were never cold. We were never hungry, you know. Uh, and my dad always f found a way to provide properly. And, and he was, you know, having the odd jobs here and there. But things were not really uh, breaking, breaking up for him. And... Uh, and we kept correspondence with an uncle on my mother's side who had immigrated to the States early on that in the century. In fact, he was here like, you know, had already been here for like 30 years. And, 
<clears throat> and at one point, he just suggested to my dad, he said, why don't you come to America? And so my dad, actually in 1952, that's four years after we'd been in the camp, he applied for a visa, visas to come to America. And the visas came three, three years later, 1955. Mm. And that was the decision time. You know, dad says, uh, all right, we're going to America for five years, then come back. Well, <laughs> <laughs> here you are. <laughs> here we are. Do you remember packing up, getting on the boat, all of that kind of thing? Or what were your feelings about it at the time? Did you want to come or did you want to stay where you were? Well, as kids, you know, believe it or not, um, uh, you have, you live in your own little world and you just imagine things. And by then, uh, Aldo and I already, uh, you know, we were gun ho about motor racing because uh, were, it was so prominent in Italy, you know, with Ferrari, Maserati, Alfa Romeo involved, and, and all our own heroes uh, at the time in the 50s, world champion Nino Farina, Alberto Ascari, you know, just those were the heroes of, uh, of the country, and, uh, and those became our idols, my idol, Alberto Ascari. You know, someday I wanted to be him. Mm -hmm. And so our dream was to become racing drivers, and we didn't know much about what was going to be in America. You know, in fact, that we were somewhat disappointed. Oh, gosh, here goes our dream. <laughs> you know, we, we knew a little bit. We knew about Indianapolis. We didn't totally understand it, you know, but, uh, you know, what? because it was not a Grand Prix per se. But um, I knew that Alberto Scotti actually competed here in 1952 with Ferrari. So there was something about it, but we didn't really get the oval thing, okay. you know. And, uh, but uh, again, you had to go along. And then the curiosity sets in, you know, so I wonder how America will be and all of that sort of thing, uh, you know, as kids. The Andretti's come to America, when One on One continues. Welcome back to One on One, I'm Mark Monteith, talking today with racing legend Mario Andretti. His family came to the U.S. on a boat, third class as a matter of fact, with $125 to their name. Do you have a memory of seeing the Statue of Liberty when you first came to the country? Oh, do I ever. It actually was a beautiful morning of June 16th, uh, 1955. And that uh, was uh, my sister, Anna Maria's 21st birthday. At five in the morning, we were sailing past the Statue of Liberty on a beautiful, splendid June day. You know, what a sight. And that was really so apropos, you know, just to come in to be introduced to America with the Statue of Liberty. That's the first thing that we saw. And yeah. then the rest, you see uh, the background of Manhattan with all the uh, traffic and all the other thing that, that, that goes on in New York, you know, but it was actually quite a beautiful introduction. Yeah, so at that point you're probably feeling pretty good about coming over, huh? Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. I mean, as kids, there's always that curiosity factor, you know, that's in there. And uh, um, and ultimately, you know, that uh, you remember these, you know, moments, you know, vividly forever. I remember our first experience. Uh, we we uh, had a cousin that um, cousin John Bemenu who 
picked us up in New York and on the way to Nazareth we stopped at one of those bullet diners you know they were uh, very you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> in vogue uh, yes. back in the 50s uh-huh. and uh, along the way and uh, we stopped for lunch and the one thing that impressed uh, us kids uh, was a milkshake we never had you know we got beautiful gelato you have all the things in Italy but never had a milkshake so I we loved the milk we were raving about a milkshake but my dad and my mom thought the food tasted like cardboard <laughs> you know because yeah. they were used to condiments uh, you know things uh, you know a lot better you yeah know, my, my, uh, so you know things like that and, and um, uh, again uh, those, are, those are the things you, you will forever remember yeah I think I read where your dad had like $125 to his name at the time that's what he started with that's it. That's what uh, he started life with in, uh, in the United States. By the time uh, paid for all the tickets, you know, and everything, you know that I, I still have the tickets uh, that, um, you know, that for the Conte Bianca Mano was the ship that we came over on, which was a sister to the Andrea Doria, which was, uh, you know, better known, more popular. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, uh, we have uh, not first, not second, it was third class tickets, but very expensive yeah. you know for back in uh, in in 1955 it was 755 dollars for the family for the yeah for yeah or five of you yeah five yeah. a lot of money though yeah yeah and how many days did the boat ride take nine days to uh, reach the port of Halifax it was an extra day because we uh, we endure a big storm uh, in the high seas and uh, fact that uh, you know it was just really huge nobody was even uh, wandering around the boat you know everybody was uh, in the cabin fast for about a day and a half and and so it was the labor it was nine days and then we arrived in Halifax um, and uh, we were there on the ground uh, about eight hours and then uh, we sailed on to New York which was you know really the regular route for uh, for these ships yeah mm-hmm. As kids, what were you doing on the boat all that time? Uh, just playing around, just yeah. doing all the thing, uh, just uh, walking, exploring everything, and just you know having a wonderful time. Yeah. But when you guys came over, none of you spoke English, right? No, uh, Aldo and I had uh, three years of English in school. Okay. And uh, my dad thought, oh gosh, I mean these kids can speak English now, you know, and all that. So when we stopped in Halifax, we did disembark, and. Um, and my dad said, oh, yeah, the kids would be able to, you know, get some postcard because, uh, you know, you always, wherever you go, you always write a postcard, you know, always, uh, and that was, that was, you know, the thing to do. And uh, <laughs> Aldo and I, the only thing we understood was yes and no. I mean, basically, you know, in school uh, languages, you learn that the basic grammar, you know, but you don't have the practical side of it. And, yeah. you know, so that's, oh, these kids were uh, wasted three years. The Andretti's settle in Pennsylvania, and Mario and Aldo go racing when one-on-one continues. Back on one-on-one, I'm Mark Monteith. The Andretti's moved in with an uncle after arriving in Pennsylvania, and it wasn't long before Mario and Aldo noticed the bright lights at the local racing track. Like homing pigeons, they found their way to the track and figured a way to begin building a racing career. They both won immediately and were equally talented. 
But Aldo's driving career took a wrong turn. So you moved to Nazareth, Pennsylvania in 1955, and uh, there was racing around there for you and Aldo to get interested in. So. Well, actually, uh, yeah, that this is really the interesting part for us because uh, uh, we arrived uh, in June, middle of June, and of course the racing season was in full swing already, as you can imagine. So we arrived uh, in the middle of the week, I think it was a Thursday or something. So a couple of days later on a Sunday, we're there by, you know, we're living with our uncle, you know, we stayed in their home for about two weeks. And um, all of a sudden, in uh, just the background, about, say, a mile and a half away or so, we see lights on a Sunday night, lights, and we hear a roar. And Aldo and I looked at each other and says, wow, you know. So we booked. We just followed the sound, <laughs> and uh, we just ran over. And uh, it, it, this was the fairground, local Nazareth fairgrounds, and they had these modified stock car races, which were on a Sunday night. And we just peeked through, you know, the slots and the fence and so forth, and we see these brute cars. It looks so odd because, you know, for us, you know, what we had imagined was Formula One. You know, there was still, you know, more yeah. sophistication. But, you know, we looked at that and says, man, you know, this is doable. <laughs> There's something that I think we <laughs> can do. You get one of these We cars. could do, yeah, we <laughs> could do this. And, uh, and that's how this whole thing, then I figure, uh, I said this so many times, uh, I said, now America wasn't so bad after all. <laughs> like, you know, they had think, racing. Yeah, they had racing. And uh, actually, the work began almost in our own mind, going to school and so forth. And then, you know, you, you talk about it and uh, obviously uh, with the, you make friends and friends either align with you or not. And, and then we started, say, you know, it was two years later in 57. We says, uh, we got to build a car. We got to build a car. Because in those days, you had to be legally 21 to race professionally. And um, so we figured, okay, 1957, we're 17. We got, you know, four years. And we've got plenty of time. So we built this car, but we finished it in two years' time. And, you know, we gathered, you know, we pulled our resources, some money, and then uh, we borrowed even $500 from the bank. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, a local businessman, uh, Jimmy Taviani, signed for us. He, he, he was letting us work in his shops. He had a block plant, which is right where the racetrack is in, um, in Nazareth now. He had a block plant there, and he had a shop where he was doing maintenance and welding. We had all the tools, and we could. that's what we worked on. That's what we... Uh, uh, we went to the junkyard, you know, we bought this 48 Hudson, and we made that uh, stock car out of it. You must have had a natural mechanical ability to be able to do that. Not really. Uh, I was never claimed to be a mechanic, but, uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and there were uh, Aldo and I and four other buddies. And you always have, uh, you know, the, the scientist, you have the mechanic, you have the dreamer, you have, you know, <laughs> everybody was bringing something different to the party. Yeah. And uh, so, and we started, again, you know, we, we, uh, we bought information because uh, the, um, one of our guys, uh, Charlie Mitch, who's, you know, not long with us, he, uh, he was the guy that we were listening to because he says, uh, you know, uh, Hudson, is the uh, stock car that was a NASCAR that was the strongest at the time. 
especially on the short tracks and and uh, and dirt tracks. So that's why we went the Hudson Way, and that's different car from what they were running locally. So and the idea, which was correct, I think to some degree, was. Uh, we can't go there as uh, new boys and try to beat them at their own game with the same things. We got to do something different. Mm -hmm. And it sort of laughed at us too, to some degree, you know, as we were building. But uh, we found out later, we never knew why, why the Hudson was su successful. Because of torsional, uh, it was so torsionally rigid that for uh, when you put cross weight, held cross weight, you could power that thing through the corner so beautifully. And, you know, it really worked for us. But, you know, not to get ahead of myself, but uh, the car was done in 59, two years later. We were 19. So we figured, what do we do? Wait two years and race? No, no way. <laughs> so we were working at night after school at uh, my uncle's. He had a Sunoco gas station at the end of town. So we made a lot of friends, of course. And, you know, trying to, you know, we're learning the, the language all along. You know, it was, it was good to be exposed. And we befriended, uh, of course, one of the customers there, which was uh, Les Young. He was uh, the local uh, news, newspaper editor of the Nazareth Key. And so we said, Les, you know, you, can you do something with our license? <laughs> with a birthday on our license? <laughs> And, you know, in those days, no computers, you know, so, yeah. and he did a pretty good job with it, and so we started racing. Suddenly you were 21. Suddenly I was 21. <laughs> Aldo and I were 21. <laughs> and uh, the way it began, we entered our first race, and, and we came up with a little bit of a white lie because, uh, you know, again, uh, uh, you have to have some kind of a background, you know, to say, okay, where do you... Why, you know, uh, why do you think you qualify, you know, to be uh, racing? So we said, oh, we raced in Italy. We raced Formula Junior in Italy, which was not true, obviously. Yeah. But even Chris Economaki, you know, uh, picked this up in Speed Sport News, you know, when we started winning. Oh, the boys raced in Italy. <laughs> and I... And I would neither confirm or deny that white lie because, you know, I had to do it. Yeah. I had to say it. And uh, that... That carried on. That's still. I'm. I'm still. Uh, the, I do some interviews to today where people dig in the background in the back. Say, "Oh, you raced from a junior." <laughs> back do you come in clean Italy. now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I. We came out of the closet, you know, with, <laughs> <laughs> with this. But uh, anyway, so uh, we're allowed to, to race, and uh, and also the promoter of that of the track was uh, Jerry Freed. He was one of the customers at the gas station. So we asked him. On a Thursday, if we could, uh, if we could have few hours of practice, and he allowed us to do that because what the heck? I mean, we never said never, driven a, a never race driven car. race car. <laughs> and uh, Aldo and I tossed a coin. You know, one race car, two drivers. He, he wins the toss, and I was kind of glad actually. <laughs> Deep you go down, first. you go first, and uh, you know, honestly, honestly, I mean, it's a matter of record. Started last in the heat. I could not believe my eyes. Boom, boom. He's passing cars. He wins the heat. <laughs> and in the race, he started 29th. 29th. And this is a sportsman series. It was not the modifieds. Mm -hmm. And I figure, okay, he won that race too. His very he first race. He won his very first race. <laughs> and you know, we made 25 bucks 
you know, for uh, for the heat. It was 125, so we made 150 dollars, and we started paying down our debt. And by I think it was uh, by July. This started in March. By July, we paid off the bank. And five hundred dollars. We were on our way. Yeah, yeah the five hundred dollars. But and I won the following week. I was going to ask, how did you I, do in your first race? Yeah, yeah, I, I had to do it. <laughs> and we won some races. Then we started, you know, all the normal thing, crashing and this and that. But but we had a really good season um, uh, until the very end of that. The very end of that season is what determined Aldo's career. Actually, uh, it was a. Uh, we were quite successful, obviously, in points. And uh, uh, they they used to have a, a um, uh, an invitational race in Hatfield, Pennsylvania, and uh, within a 150 mile radius, anyone that was at, in the top three in points at a different tracks within that radius would be invited for this uh, uh, last seasonal event, and both of us met that criteria, and we were invited. I I got a ride with. Uh, uh, somebody from Allentown for close by had a modified and we were raining, racing with our sportsmen. It was so fast that we could race modified <laughs> and Aldo was racing our car. Mm -hmm. And um, I had already qualified for the feature through the heat and he was out there and he was running second behind Freddie Adams who was the track champion. And I was so happy. I said, you know, but he was trying to beat him. He didn't have to, because the top four was qualifying for the feature. And and I'm out there almost threw my body on the track to <laughs> slow him down, stay there, you know, just just qualify, you know. And he hooked the guardrail coming off the back straight away, end over end. And uh, I mean he he obviously, you know, is in a coma where they pulled him out and mm. um yeah. And they gave him his last rites at the hospital that night. Um and um he was in a coma for a long time. And, you know, in those days, you know, they weren't very smart at diagnosing things. They thought he might have had a broken neck. They had him in traction. They had all kinds of things, but he was still. Anyway, uh, then he came around. He was, you know, and luckily, uh, you know, things started to normalize. But, um, but again, it was just still a shadow, you know, over his head, poor guy. And, uh, yeah. and he... Um, and he continued racing for 10 years after that. Uh, in fact, that then he had, he was hurt seriously again in Des Moines, Iowa. Not his fault. Yeah, in 69, uh, right? 69, uh, uh, Pete Falls uh, spun in front of him. And T-Bone went up uh, almost in the grandstands. And, and that was ended, that ended his career. But, yeah. uh, you know, it was just reality sets in, you know, when things like that happen. Yeah. But although it was just not not as lucky as I was. He yeah. just, it, it's as plain as that. He just... Um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know how you quantify that. You know, uh, luck is an abstract, as yeah. we all know. But f for some reason, I, things were happening for me. And and if there were any glitches, they were happening to him. You know, because Aldo was, you know, every bit as fast or faster than I was. I was going to no ask, is he as good it. as yeah. you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, at, at everything, you know, I think uh, certainly everything that I had and more. But for um, some reason, just like, just like my other son, you know, Mike and Jeff, two sons in racing, Michael like a laser, like, you know, things happening in a positive way, just like it, it was happening for me. And Jeff 
just racing with a cloud, a dark cloud over his head. Just, uh, just the way it was the only way I can explain it. Yeah. You know, for 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 Aldo, it was the same thing. It was something that was going to happen in front in front of somebody was going to happen in front of him. You know, and it was just uh, how do you explain that? I don't know. You can't. You can't really. I wonder when all when Aldo had that first accident in '59 when he's in a coma. Did you ever give thought to well maybe we should stop doing this? Did you ever think of stopping? Quite what, honestly, what, what were your parents thinking all this? Oh yeah, that's a that's a good one. My parents because uh, my dad didn't even know we were racing. I he was didn't want to you know. about that. Yeah, you guys my, were sneaking off and racing. Well, yes, and and um, and the only defense that we had was that or that uh, he he didn't speak the language very well, so. Even, you know, when people would come up to him, say, hey, your boys are doing well. He thought, even at home, <laughs> at, at work, I mean, his boss, hey, your boys are doing good. He thought they were, you know, just uh, uh, telling him how good he is in, at his job or something, you know. <laughs> and so he, he didn't know. My mother sort of did. She was a little bit sharper, <laughs> if you will, you know. And, um, but she obviously, you know, she was caught in the middle. And uh, as a matter of fact, that night... When Aldo didn't come home, I called, obviously, uh, because we stayed in a hospital. We slept, uh, you know, on, on <laughs> in the waiting room uh, mm -hmm. all night. But I called mom. I said, Mom, uh, I was racing. She said, oh, I know. I figured. I said, and so was Aldo. But when Aldo was out there racing, I was, uh, uh, and when I was racing out there, Aldo was on, uh, watching me, and he fell off a pickup truck. And he banged his head. <laughs> Another white lie. <laughs> and uh, she was very silent on the other side. She knew better. You know, mothers have that instinct. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, and um, I said, we'll be home tomorrow morning. Well, uh, the next morning, you know, the doctor and the policeman, the local police chief came over and they said, we need to have the parents here. And uh, so obviously I had to, you know, fess up. But... They knew something was wrong because uh, the the news went out. You know, uh, when they brought the car back, the race car back, all obviously half destroyed, and uh, and my buddies they parked uh, in the middle of town. There was a little restaurant where everybody used to hang out. So the word went out like wildfire. So you know, the word was out that he was hurt. So my dad obviously felt that, okay, yeah. we, we didn't dare tell him because we knew we wouldn't ha get his permission because uh, he didn't understand the sport from the standpoint of the value of it. All he knew that, you know, he would hear about a lot of negatives, the fatalities. That's what, you know, you would always, uh, you know, hear about. And, um, and so he felt vindicated. See, I told you, you know, they bring you back on your, you know, in a body bag and so forth. So it was a difficult time in that. But, but, you know, to answer your question about, you know, were we thinking about, you know, quitting? Well, quite honestly, while Aldo was still in a coma, I already started building a new car. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what the doctor was telling me? He says, because I, I, every day I used to travel down, it was like 58 miles or something to the hospital. Every day we went to see him at night. And uh, the doctor says, when you talk to him, talking about things that will interest him. So I kept talking, tell Aldo, I'm building a new car. And, you know, all this stuff was already yeah. telling him. You know? <laughs> and then, you know, we finally, when he came out of it, 
then the first thing that he said with his famous words is, I'm glad you had to be the one to face the old man. <laughs> so I knew we had him back. He wanted to be in a coma for I a while. I knew we had him back. You know, I mean, I knew he was thinking right. So I said, okay, all right, we'll be okay from here. But, uh, you know, it's it, it makes you think. Obviously, throughout my career, you know, I lost a lot of friends. You know, mm -hmm. unfortunately, the sport, um, you know, was not as safe as it is today, uh, right through the decades, really. And, and, uh, uh and we did, you know, we were losing uh, friends left and right. And, yeah. uh, and somehow you just had to turn that side off, yeah. you know, in your mind and uh, not dwell on the negative. But Aldo, he went right back to racing when he recovered, right? He didn't oh, have yes. any hesitation. Yeah, he, he, uh, yeah, he uh, took one year sabbatical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then little by little, I, um, you know, he, he started, he was asking for uh, to get, you know, some practice. You know, each um, event, uh, they would have intermission between the heat races and the feature. And I talked the promoter into letting him do a few laps during the intermission, you know, my car. And, and so he was getting, you know, back to practice. And he said, I'm ready to go now. <laughs> <laughs> so you two were obviously very close. Were you in any way rivals? Did you argue about who was better? Or were you trying to compete against one another? Or were you just a team? No, we were actually... That part never played. I mean, uh, we there was never a reason, you know, to uh, to uh, be adversaries to that to that degree. I think we were pulling for one another because as soon as that accident happened, and I started going a different way. Also, I was going to midgets and whatever, and then he was he kept going to stalker. So we didn't really race against one another. We only in a couple of races with sprint cars. I remember. When he was into sprint cars, and I was as well, uh, we raced together, but not, not too much. So there was none of that. We always pulled for one another. Mario reflects on his father's legacy when one-on-one -on -one continues. We're back on one-on-one. -on -one. Mark Monteith here with racing legend Mario Andretti. His parents lived into their 90s, plenty long enough to watch him become a racing champion. Here's Mario recalling the legacy his father could not have imagined. How long did your dad live? My dad lived to be 90. Yeah. Uh, uh, wonderful life, uh, obviously, and so did my mother. Yeah, and uh, so we were very fortunate to have him for. Yeah, so I'm trying to think what year. What year did it? Pass? My dad passed. My dad passed away in uh, right at by well, November 1999. Oh, okay. So they saw your racing career. I mean, oh, they saw the whole thing. And absolutely, yes, 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 and uh, many of the big events. In fact, uh, even uh, one of the trips, uh, my dad used to take me to the airport. You know, whenever I would go to to Europe, uh, and. Uh, and one day, um, my wife just wasn't ready and so forth. She said, well, you know what, you go by yourself this time. And, and I told dad, I says, your passport uh, uh, current? He says, yeah. I says, pick up a couple of things, some underwear. I says, you go with me. So we went to Italy for the Italian Grand Prix. I was driving for Ferrari. Yeah. And uh, he came along with me. So, you know, again, uh, he, and he did travel to many races throughout the country. So. Yeah. Did he usually come to the 500? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. That, that was a given. Yeah. 
Oh, he must have. Oh, you know what a life he had. I mean, just uh, where he started from and went through and everything else. Oh, yeah, true. I mean, it's uh, everything. Once we reach these shores, uh, we truly, as a family, live the American dream. That's mm -hmm. one thing that I can say. Uh, we are a pure example of that uh, because uh, things just uh, went the right way. Uh, the family together and we progressed and um, and the kids you know we all did well and happy and and all of those good things yeah so when you and Aldo were going to those races in Nazareth uh, uh, the lights that you saw and you weren't telling your parents you know what you were doing what did they think you were doing <laughs> well, you know, to get out of the house <laughs> yeah kids are kids you know okay they uh, I don't think they they made anything of it. I mean, we were still, what, 15 years of age yeah. and, and all that. It, uh, it's just, but it's just something that uh, as things got more serious, uh, my dad sort of made it known that uh, he does not approve, you know, so we didn't dare challenge that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and if we would challenge that early, then, then we would have had a really, really uh, uphill battle because we would have had to defy him directly. So this way we defied him indirectly, <laughs> by not letting him know anything. Yeah, okay. <laughs> As I'll say again, our defense was uh, his lack of uh, the understanding of the language, especially uh, you know in those imminent years, you know, mm -hmm. two three years after we arrived here. You must have had some opportunities to joke with him after you had all your racing success. That see, Dad, you know, we knew what we were doing, or you know, okay. yeah, yeah, you should I mean, let us do it. Yeah, he gave in. Yeah. He gave in after. As a matter of fact, the the, the best part was uh, once we reached, as I told you, at the age of 21, Aldo was racing, and so was I. So he started coming around, and he would ask Aldo, "Hey, how's Mario doing?" And then he come to me and says, "How's Aldo doing?" <laughs> he, he wouldn't go directly, you know, but he, he would go to one or the other. He thought he might get the truth if he asked about the other. Well, one. <laughs> actually, he didn't want to give us the satisfaction that he's interested directly uh, so that's how he was that that was his way of doing it one on one with mario andretti continues in a moment hey hope you enjoyed catching up on mario andretti's story it's a classic tale of the american dream isn't it a family comes over on a boat with almost no money to their name and builds a life. Or in Mario's case, a legendary life. By the way, the difference in audio quality in a couple of the show's segments is due to the fact I had to meet with Mario on different days, in different locations, and with a different recording device. I originally was going to talk to him only once, but my time with him the first day was limited, and I wound up with enough material for a show and a half. He had been so cooperative, and the interview had gone so well, I decided to go back and talk with him again, to gather enough material to do a second show as well, rather than have to delete so much of it. And if you're wondering, the theme song today is the aria Nessum Dorma. It's one of the most famous arias in the world. Mario chose it personally for this show, and I'm told he can sing it in Italian from start to finish. When he's in the right mood and the right crowd, I found that out too late to ask him to favor us with part of it, but I did find this clip from an interview he conducted with CNN. Have a listen. Is it true that you're an opera singer? True. Care to demonstrate? Not bad, huh? 
Now, if you want to hear this or any of the other one-on-one episodes, all you got to do is go to the website at 1070thefan.com. Click on Shows, click on -on One-on-One, click on the podcast link, and you'll have access to every single one of them. I can be reached by email at mark at 1070thefan.com, and I'm available on Facebook and Twitter as well. That Twitter handle, strangely enough, is at Mark Monteith. And I'll be back next week with part two of Mario Andretti's incredible story, where he'll discuss his fate at the Indy 500 and reveal his dreams. Right here on FM 107.5 and 1070 The Fan. Lesson Dharma.